So we are at uh, part two of our study called uh, uh, Forged in Fire, and we are going to continue to kind of remind you of these key ideas. This is kind of how I structured our thoughts, um, that faith is always in the process of going through changes. And uh, you can term that as deconstruction or reconstruction. You can call it about call it as processing a faith over the course of a lifetime. But I'm kind of using this idea of First Peter chapter one, uh, verse seven. I read this last week, but I'll read it again. It says here, "In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials." These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the idea of being refined is an ongoing process, and we go through different cycles. And when we think about our faith over the course of a lifetime— I bet as you look back on your life, you'll find that there are things that you were initially introduced to in the Christian uh, faith that you have moved on from. There are other things that you have refined. Uh, there are still some things that are perplexing and mysterious. And so we have, we're using this kind of uh, cyclical idea that we move from simplicity to complexity to perplexity. And finally, we have some harmony that comes in our mind and our heart, at least for a little while, unless that you, uh, same issue goes back through the cycle again. And sometimes the issues of life are sort of like the laundry, aren't they? You have to keep putting them into the cycle and uh, moving around with it and uh, coming out with this um, idea of a more mature faith, refined type of faith. So that's kind of what we're talking about uh, over the next few weeks. Last idea here, and this is my disclaimer, deconstruction is not necessarily something we choose for ourselves, but it is this dynamic process that happens to us when we're really trying to pursue truth honestly, when we are honest with the facts and honest with ourselves when we begin to evaluate some of our inherited assumptions, things that are often um, told to us by key authority figures that we've had a lot of respect for, but sometimes these things are presented maybe one-sided or shaded a little bit, and we weren't told the full uh, gamut of a particular thing. So one of the things that Bud mentioned last week is if I could give some examples of that, and tonight we're going to look at a couple of different examples uh, of a person uh, that has had to go kind of through this process of change in understanding. But before I get there, let me kind of introduce tonight by saying these things. Um, these deconstruction is making adjustments. It's not the idea of abandoning your faith, it's the idea of adjusting and, and giving precision to some things that maybe uh, it's easier not to, because let's face it, uh, when you begin to uh, try to evaluate your faith and make those adjustments of things that you are learning, um, it's a lot of work uh, mentally, sometimes emotionally, depending upon what the issue is. And um, 
I use, I'm going to use an analogy here. Um, when we move into a home, so our house here, we built in 1997. And so we have been in here for a long time. And it was an adequate structure for us um, when we moved into this house and uh, we designed it. But over the course of the years, uh, there are things that if we had to build it over again, we would have done differently. Uh, things that would have made life a little bit easier, more convenient, or more long lasting. So at that time when we were building our house, uh, we had a budget line that we had to stay within that uh, so we wouldn't go over what we could pay per month. Uh, over the years, um, we've had to change things. Uh, just like in your home, the floor needs changed, the carpet needs changed, different things like that. And when you do that, you just don't duplicate necessarily the things that you did initially. Uh, there might be a better uh, uh, color scheme or material or whatever it might be that you're using because things continue to develop. So I'll give you one example is our deck. I love our deck. However, it's a lot of work. Um, it's made all of wood and uh, constantly needs painted. It constantly needs um, the uh, the deck floor needs to be scraped and uh, put down uh, new material. Well, people are, that are building a deck today can build uh, build it with composite materials that wasn't available back when we built our house. Uh, and it would make it makes their life a lot easier. They don't have to go through that process every several years. So if we can use that analogy for faith as well, we're constantly learning, we're constantly adjusting, and there's always new things that we can apply that maybe has not always been around, at least within our scope of understanding or exposure. And so when we look at our theological house, if I can use that metaphor, there's always things that need to be tweaked, changed, or repaired. The key question, I, th I think, though, is, is my current theological house worthy of the one that I call my Savior, Jesus? And sometimes what we'll find is that things that we have been told, when we begin to evaluate some of those things, we, be go, we go, man, that is a little bit dilapidated. Um, that is something that needs some repair. And that might be different for all of us, depending upon what the issue is. Um, but what we'll find is we're not tearing down the house, we're remodeling it theologically. And what we're doing is holding to the key concepts, uh, most often summarized in the Apostles' Creed or something like that, but uh, we need to kind of deconstruct, reconstruct some of those things. And this is, I think, where the Holy Spirit comes in as kind of the general contractor that says, hey, this will work better uh, if, you're, if you will allow me to make these changes. And, you know, I, I just love, Shelly, your story. You've told it a number of times about how you changed your viewpoint on the LGBTQ+. Plus issue that, um, you know, that is a perfect example of doing some theological adjustments, remodeling your theological house, if you will.
and um and the holy spirit is the one that kind of prompted you on that you couldn't ignore it you know as you saw the holes in the wall type of thing and you go okay this needs repaired and uh, you were brave enough to step into that sometimes people aren't brave enough to step in to some of those issues and make those adjustments because of fear fear of being rejected fear of being criticized. Um, for many pastors, it's fear of being unemployed. Um, if they make certain theological adjustments that are not in agreement with the doctrinal statement of their church, that type of thing. So um, I think our part in this process of a faith that is being refined is to get out of the way um, of, of what God wants to do uh, and what I mean by that is stop holding on to kind of broken furniture that we just will not let go of because uh, it's broken, it's not working, and it's something that uh, needs a better design or um, a, a better working model, that type of thing. So that's my introduction to tonight. Do you have some thoughts? And then I'm going to give you an example uh, of one. Uh, here in a second, but do you have any thoughts or questions? Well, I think some people won't even challenge what they've been taught because not so much of fear of being rejected by people, but they're afraid that maybe they wouldn't be saved. Right. Yeah, that's really true. So let's say you your know, the theological house uh, has a concept of God that is a theology professor, and and um, God is going to give you a final exam, and he's not going to let you into heaven unless you get all the answers right. Well, if that's your working model of what God is like. The fear is, if I change and I'm wrong, what are the eternal consequences of that? And that's just a terrible way to have to live your life. I mean, it's... Um, living constantly looking over your shoulder. And, but I think mm -hmm. you're exactly right. I think that's uh, exactly right. So any others? Good, good comment. Okay, so one example I wanna give you is Mary Magdalene. I want you to take your Bible. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And the first place I want you to go to is chapter 7, although we're not introduced to Mary Magdalene until chapter 8. But the reason I'm having you turn to chapter 7 is there is a misperception that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Had any of you had that kind of thought or understanding in your church life? Okay, yeah. so... Esty says yes. I see Beth uh, shaking her head yes, and Brenda shaking her head yes. Now, the where that came about is actually misidentifying the woman that's in chapter 7 with the name of Mary Magdalene in chapter 8. Let me show you. So in chapter 7, come down to verse 36. It says here, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, there's the assumption here that she's a prostitute, um, even, even though the text says she's a sinner. But I think one of the things that um, was often assumed by the use of the word sinner with a woman was that she was someone that was trying to make a living using her her um, her looks and her body as a way of making money, even though the text doesn't say that. Now, then Jesus goes in um, to a story and talks about who owes the greater debt, uh, and the, the one who owed the bigger debt uh, will be more thankful. And uh, so that goes on the rest of chapter 7. Come to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, after this... Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, what we know about this woman in chapter 8 is she's from an area called uh, Magdala, and so she is a Magdalene, uh, sort of like a Galilean. It, it's a territory. It's a geography, and she must have been pretty well off. Uh, she helped to su uh, support the earthly ministry of Jesus, and if you go back to chapter seven and you see this alabaster jar of perfume and um, and the amount of money that must have been in that alabaster jar led Gregory the Great, one of the popes in 591, to say it's the same woman. It's uh, Mary Magdalene that was the woman in chapter seven. The text doesn't say that. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 8 that Jesus moved on to another town and to another area. But that kind of caught on. And uh, as such, and of course with the idea of um, papal uh, authority and infallibility, uh, if that's what Gregory said, that must, uh, must be what's true. The text never says that. What it does tell us in uh, chapter 8, and again at the end of the Gospel of Mark chapter 16, I won't turn there, is that Mary somehow had uh, several demons, seven in particular, exercised through the earthly ministry of Jesus. She became a follower of Jesus and then began to use some of her proceeds or profits. Um, we're not told what she did, nor are we really told of Susanna and Joanna, that's also mentioned here, beginning chapter eight, where they got their resources, but they, they made 
donations to the earthly ministry of Jesus. But you see what happens here is um, there's a merging here of two different people into one identity. And that has caught on for a long period of time. And here we are many, many years later, and there's still some people that kind of hold that. I don't, but I think that, you know, those type of things sometimes catch momentum. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Uh is it possible that there was an assumption at the time that the only way women could have ever made any money and had anything of value like that alabaster jar was by being a prostitute because that's the only way they could have earned money? And it was just assumed that's probably what she did because she yeah. had money. Yeah. Or did they assume the other women that are mentioned are the same, you know, gain their money the same way? Well, I, I don't know about that, but... We are told about Joanna in chapter eight being the manager of Herod's household. So she was some type of administrator to, you know, Herod's entourage, whatever that is. But um, yeah, I think you're right, though. I do think you're right that there could be the assumption that, well, what other way would a woman make ends meet in a patriarchal world, right? And have an alabaster jar of perfume. Or yeah. Get something yeah. that's, you know, so expensive and, and it's a luxury. Mm -hmm. Right. But here's again where you can go to other passages of scripture. Lydia in the book of Acts was a dyer of purple cloth. And that's the way she was pretty well off. She owned a home and that became the local church in Philippi in her home. So for every assumption, I guess you could find another angle to look at it, right? So. But I was just saying that's probably why the assumption was made that, that she was a prostitute because, because of that. I think you're right. Yeah, I do. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Now, the point is of bringing up Mary is not, her misidentification. The point is she became a prominent person in the ministry of Jesus, okay? And what's fascinating is, uh, as we'll see in a moment, she becomes kind of the focal point of the one that sees the resurrected Christ uh, uh, after his resurrection. Well, I'll come to that in a second. I think it's fair to say that Mary probably had an assumption, much like Peter and the rest of the disciples. And that was the assumption that if Jesus is the Messiah, then he's going to bring his kingdom uh, to earth. And that kingdom will also bring about a regime change that no longer will the Romans uh, occupy the Jews and hold them uh, under their thumb. So Mary probably had that same assumption because she's traveling with the disciples. She's supporting the earthly ministry of Jesus. And all of a sudden, just like the rest of the disciples, when Jesus is arrested and when he is crucified, uh, the disciples uh, scatter. And the only one that kind of hung around was Peter in the courtyard. And then 
he probably regretted that because uh, of a lady that says, weren't you one of his followers? And he denies Jesus three times, which Jesus had already predicted. So anyways, Mary probably had some assumptions that Jesus was going to, as Messiah, bring about his kingdom. Now that brings me to her deconstruction. So go over to uh, John chapter 20. In the gospel of John chapter 20, we are told about the resurrection of Jesus. And then what's fascinating is this interaction between uh, Mary Magdalene and what sh uh, who she assumes is a gardener. So if you come to chapter 20, you'll see in verse 1 what happens. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she's the first one to see the empty tomb. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which is kind of a sly way of uh, John talking about himself, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. What is her assumption there? The body was stolen. Okay. She thinks that the body was stolen out of the tomb. Where have they placed him? Why have they taken him out? So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, so he doesn't name himself, but John is faster than Peter. And it says he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Peter came along behind him, went into the tomb, saw the strips of linen, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And, okay, now they're in the midst of deconstruction. Now, what happened here? Uh, where is the body of Jesus? So it says in verse 10, the disciples went back to where they were staying. So they leave. They go back, but not Mary Magdalene. Take a look at verse 11. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. You know, she's in the throes of grief. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head of the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away. She's still what? Thinking that the body is what? Stolen, right? And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, I have always found that sentence uh, amazing. Why couldn't she recognize Jesus? What's going on here? that she wouldn't be able to recognize him. So he asked the question, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Now, this is another fascinating statement. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. 
And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And the minute that he speaks, she turns around and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Okay, so first deconstruction. The body wasn't stolen. Second deconstruction. Uh, the, you know, where have you taken him? You're the gardener. Where have you put him? Then all of a sudden he speaks and she begins to, to, to change. And she begins to be filled with hope. Her world has come alive again. And then Jesus does this in verse 17. Look, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now she has to go through another deconstruction. I can't, I can't hug you. I can't cling on to you. I can't keep you here. Um, those type of things. So what does she do? She goes and she tells the disciples, verse 18, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, there's several components there. Her faith was shattered and now it's resurrected. But then Jesus is giving her a hint that he's not going to hang around any longer. He's going to send, he's going to leave all of this is very confusing to her and would be confusing also to the disciples as well. So the first place she reaches in her faith is a dead end. He's not the Messiah and he dies. Second dead end is that they've stolen the body. Third dead end is you're ascending, you're going away again. What's going on here? So she has to do something that I think all of us have to do at times, and that is to rethink our previous assumptions. She has to rethink about the fact, what does Messiah um, look like? What is Messiah's agenda? Um, I've gotten this wrong. He's not going to conquer the Romans. Um, what is her assumption about his kingdom on earth. Well, why is he going away? Why is he ascending? Um, it's this idea of kind of reshaping her thinking again. Um, and all those type of things come about as new facts and new circumstances begin to unfold. And um, I'm not going to go through the rest of chapter 20, but you know where chapter 20 leads eventually to Thomas, um, who is called Doubting Thomas, because uh, he's finally given up hope and and uh, Jesus will appear to him and he'll need to put his finger into Jesus' side and so forth. So there's a few people that's going through this process of a forged faith in this chapter, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, Thomas that type of thing. So what happens a lot of times is we are operating on the assumption that what we are given in the Bible is complete. 
um, that all the information God wants to give us is there. Well, when you do that, you begin to look at the Bible as kind of like an owner's manual. You know, you look up in the index any particular thing and anything you need to know is there. That's not true. So what we we find is there's different topics that the Bible doesn't touch upon. There's different topics that are in process and in change. And when different evidence uh, begins to continue to unfold, as God continues to speak, he's not bound by the pages of the Bible, um, then what we find is that we need to reevaluate. We re need to rethink. And so I've given you some uh, examples here. So, you know, some people have evaluated and wrestled with this whole creationism to the far, far right, this idea of Earth and the cosmos is about six to 10,000 years old, and God created everything in six literal days versus the evidence of evolution found in the fossil record, and it gets very complicated and complex. However, you'll notice that some people will dig in their heels. No matter what, they're not going to rethink this because that's where they're safe for whatever reason on one particular side or the other. I, you know, I don't think the earth is young. I think it's exactly what scientists are telling us. I think the cosmos is billions of years old, but um, you know, how that all works itself out is there's a variety of different ways of looking at it. Uh, another example is some people never be, move beyond the idea of a God that would torture people for eternity in a fire of hell versus, and this might be a study for us at some point, maybe after the first of the year, there's multiple verses that implies universalism in the Bible. What do you do with that? Okay. How do you reconcile that? Um, and I already talked about the Bible that here, the nature of it being inerrant versus being inspired. Those are two different things. So, you know, everybody has to kind of work through some of that stuff. Some people are ready to wrestle with it. Some people, they'll never wrestle with it. Uh, they'll never take the evidence. And no matter what conclusions they come with, they just won't wrestle with it and think it through because it's safer or maybe because it's easier not to, uh, to do that type of thing. So some thoughts there before I, I'm going to give you four things right here on the rest of this slide of what we should do when we kind of get to that place on a particular topic or issue or emotion or whatever it may be. Some thoughts? Okay, so here's four things that I think might be helpful that when we come to that place. Number one is don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. You know, these issues come up all the time in life. Once we take it out of the realm of religion, we we begin to go, okay, these are all issues that we need to, to work through. Is there a better way of whatever it is? Working, it, it could be on your job. It could be in the political arena. It could be in social issues. It could be a variety of things. We shouldn't be ashamed to say, I'm always in the process of deconstructing and reconstructing 
my faith and I'm restored through that process because that's what will sustain me. So don't be afraid of doubt in particular. Doubt is a very necessary part of life. It's a very necessary part of faith. And sometimes when people have some elements of doubt, they think that uh, somehow that's disqualifying their faith. And that's not true. Doubt is a doorway to a better faith. And so uh, faith after doubt is something that, um, that we all go through. Uh, number two, just remember, whatever way you organize your theological house, you know, that's a wide spectrum from Arminianism to Calvinism, from, you know, Pentecostalism to high church, whatever, I mean, however you organize your, your house. Remember, that's not Jesus. Your theological house is not Jesus. And you have to make a distinction between the person of Jesus and the theology of Jesus that we develop uh, about Jesus. Here's one way of thinking about it. If this was easy, there would not be 40,000 different Protestant denominations around the world. So, it, you know, people come to different conclusions on things, but all of a sudden they begin to confuse their theological house with Jesus himself. And I think that's a mistake. So number three, we often have to be aware of the pendulum effect. Um, there are certain parts of our theological thinking that gets dilapidated, um, just like a house can be dilapidated. So have any of you watched uh, episodes of Hoarders? You want to talk about, I mean, talk about dilapidated homes. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's not, they're not cleaned. They're not repaired. Um, there's just a bunch of junk there. Well, as they go through that, and there's a whole team that does the hoarders uh, process and stuff, there's a lot of junk. They have to pull up the, the trailer trash bin and just throw all kinds of things out. But in that home can also be priceless treasures as well. They might need to be cleaned up a bit, but they're, they're still treasures. And that's true, too, in faith, that a lot of things sometimes that we believe become dilapidated, but you don't throw the whole thing out. There's priceless treasures, things like grace, things like salvation, things like, um, you know, the Holy Spirit, um, those type of things that give to us the ability to have a meaningful life and to um, to live out our faith uh, throughout the course of our whole life. Finally, number four, uh, we often need to open up our door to other theological perspectives, or we might say to other theological homes and the beauty that they bring into the discussion. One of the great things that I regret about my seminary education, which was a very good education, but they safeguarded their theological house by not allowing the door to be open to other perspectives. So now all these years later, I look back and I go, 
they cheated us out of a real education in many ways, because you need to understand not everyone uh, looks at issues the same way. Not everyone uh, believes the same way, and there's reasons for that. Uh, it's not, oh, yeah, uh, they're heretics, you know, dismissing people or something. In fact, people don't even look the same way at the scriptures, depending on their own culture and depending upon where they live in the world. But when you're only exposed to white male theologians, you have a very one-sided perspective of faith. And that's unfortunately the dominance of evangelicalism a lot of times. It's white male theologians that write those books. So open it up and begin to understand where other people are coming from. Just don't get in fistfights over it. That's what's most important. So thoughts there? The uh, priceless treasures, uh, the thing that, that comes to my mind is not long ago, Pastor Jesse told me in uh, one of the um, discussions we had, she said, remember your baptism and be grateful. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stuck with me. Just <clears throat> that's one of those treasures mm -hmm. that you go back to and you, you know, you ponder on it and it, how it impacted your life. Mm -hmm. that's and great. that's one of the priceless treasures that you find as you look through some of those things in, in your, your house of, of theology or faith or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's good. Do you remember your baptism pretty vividly? Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, others online there? Do you do you remember if you were baptized? Uh, anything about it? Yeah. Or now, uh, Beth, you were you grew up Lutheran. Were you baptized as a baby? You got to un, uh, undo your mute button. Oh, I was I was baptized as a baby by my great uncle who was a Lutheran minister. Uh-huh. And I don't remember that. Yeah. I um, mean, did you get rebaptized or anything or uh, as no. a way of no, okay. No. Sometimes people do cuz they want that that memory, oh, yeah. that, that type of thing. So. No. I was gone death. I know my mom did. She got baptized in the Jordan River. Mm. Now that would be very memorable, wouldn't it? Yeah. By her first cousin who was a minister. So gotcha. Okay. I was baptized. I grew up in a disciple of Christ Church. Mm -hmm. And I went through the class when I was about 12, but I'd always believed Jesus was God's son and that he died for us. Mm -hmm. And I was baptized at age 12. Mm -hmm. Well, then we got into a Baptist church and you know, they were hammering, well, if you haven't been baptized in the Baptist church, and both were immersion. Yeah. But yeah. I always oh. felt kind of sheepish about the second one. Yeah, that was kind of a, a pressure put upon you. Yeah. Because our, our way, our theological house as Baptists uh, is better. Therefore, you need to, to redo that, you know. Um again, you get some of that type of stuff all the time it, between different, you know, types of uh, faith. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was baptized uh, at a, uh, a North American Baptist church 
by immersion. And then when we moved to Dallas and visited some Southern Baptist churches, they said to become a member, you would have to be baptized in a Southern Baptist church. North American Baptist church baptism didn't count. <laughs> Too liberal? I don't know. No, no, North American Baptists were not too liberal. Trust me on that. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know those Southern Baptists. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's where you begin to confuse. That's what I'm talking about. Your theological okay, no. house with Jesus. No. Okay. Right. So, in other words, I, you know, I'm perfectly fine. In fact, just recently, within the last year, I did a couple of infant baptisms for a couple people uh, in the, you know, in our church and stuff. And I'm perfectly fine with that. And, you know, of course, I've done plenty of uh, what is often called believers baptism, that the idea of people making a conscious decision and so forth. Right. And I, I'm fine either way. Uh, with doing that, because I think it enhances different components of our faith. Uh, in the case of infant baptism, it's something that is kind of like a welcoming of that child into the community of faith right. and, and right. all that type of stuff. So it, you know, but a lot of times people will fight new, uh, tooth and nail over a lot of these things. Uh, and I think that's an example of where we begin to confuse our theological preferences. Let's face it, that's kind of what it is uh, in in many cases uh, with Jesus himself. And so, uh, you know, we need to be careful of that type of thing. So if we go, the church we belong to up here is a Lutheran church mm -hmm. and they baptize infants, but they also invite the community to stand with the parents Mm -hmm. Like it was mm -hmm. a um, uh, dedication, uh -huh. almost. Mm -hmm. um, but I know one of my friends um, who's a master gardener in Lake County believes that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. Yeah, yeah. Well, there again, it's putting... Another... It, yeah. Yeah. It's the where the emphasis is being placed a lot of times within their theological construct. I think so. we got onto a rabbit trail, and I just <laughs> tried to make a point of, you know, something that's priceless treasure. It's you remember your baptism, and this was your commitment. Yeah. To right. Christ right. is that priceless treasure. Yeah. That I remember, and for me, that's what what. I was referring to baptism as being mm -hmm. that. So yeah. you hang on to some of those things that were just life-changing type of mm -hmm. events or situations, whatever it might be. It could right. be baptism, it could be something else, it could be whatever. Yeah. But it's a priceless treasure that you just go, well, this is where I made that that decision, that commitment, that, that you know, and I'm still committed to Christ, no matter how I rethink some of the other things in life this is my priceless treasure mm -hmm. very good all right i'm gonna give you a couple more examples of a couple of people that had to go kind of through this process that we're talking about so um let me just kind of finalize this part with um this idea here sometimes we get into trouble when we fail to make distinctions between uh, Christ, the church, and Christianity. 
that's not a single entity. Um, religion is a human construct that seeks to understand and encounter the divine. And, um, and a lot of times we need that healthy balance between both challenging and preserving the traditions that shape us. Well, if you're going to make a distinction, here's maybe a way of thinking about it. Um, a threefold distinction. Number one, God gave us Jesus. Then Jesus promised Peter that he would help build the church. But then it's the church that developed Christianity, the things that we see. And the development of the church often changes from the different contexts it finds itself. Christianity is not going to be the same in North America, as it is in South America, as it is in Africa, as it is in the Far East. It's just not. And there needs to be flexibility. There needs to be adaptation. And we just need to remember that those are human constructs. And Jesus is not a prisoner to any one particular human construct. Uh, so if we can continue to keep that in mind, thinking and rethinking some of the things that we believe um, is just natural because the longer we live, the more wisdom we accumulate along the way. Okay, so uh, in our pilgrimage uh, through some of the dark nights, of uh, this really troubles some people. So I got an email off our website uh, today that was from a young man um, that he is a gay young man that he had come to terms with. He dedicated Christian, um, and he had come to terms with that. But all of a sudden, he met someone and, and started to date another individual, and for whatever reason, that caused him to start to rethink again whether he is okay with God, because now all of a sudden there's really a, a person, you know what I'm saying, that he is dating. Now all of a sudden he's questioning whether, and so he reached out uh, to us and, um, and, you know, just in responding back, I think it's important to understand that we all go through some of those dark nights. And I think that's what this uh, young man, I don't know how old he is, but uh, that's, you know, what he's going through. He's kind of going through that dark night, uh, but a new dawn will arise. And I, I hope that he'll be able to, um, you know, break through that and find the peace that he had had when he initially came to terms with the fact that he was a gay man and God was okay with that. But now all of a sudden, you know, there's these doubts because uh, there's an actual individual that is in, in, in his life. So I think what happens sometimes is we'll go through these stretches. And as we go through them, we need to really trust that there's a new dawn that's about to arise. So, you know, a lot of times, just a couple points here, holding on to certitude in dogged insistence kind of prevents that progress. Um, so 
we can't look at spiritual progress as an unending addition of knowledge. And that is a lot of times the way we look at Christianity is, okay, I just got to keep filling the uh, my, my mental suitcase with more facts. No, spiritual progress involves knowing, unknowing, and then coming to a new knowledge of th certain things many times. Or you go through that process and it affirms what you think about and what you believe already. So many times we prefer to stay within what we know, um, but complacency is the real problem, not doubt. Complacency is the, the biggest uh, obstacle in our way because uh, we don't want to wrestle with things. Okay, here's a couple of the other illustrations. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Mary Magdalene. I'm not going to have you turn to Hebrews 11, but Abraham, uh, his journey, we're told, was one of leaving his home, uh, looking for a city whose maker uh, and builder was God. So he was looking for whatever um, he could to connect with the divine and he actually left behind uh, his life, his home, his upbringing, his, uh, his religion, those type of things. The bigger illustration, though, I think, is Saul of Tarsus. So talk about a guy who was, I mean, uh, dogged and insistent in what he believed was this man who would eventually become the Apostle Paul. So he was very zealous. And I want you to hear his words. Go over to Acts chapter 26 for a second. Acts chapter 26. So here, he's telling his story before King Agrippa in this ch uh, chapter. And he is, he kind of, he kind of, um, I guess, shows his credentials. Look at verse four. He says, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So he is being on trial by his own uh, countrymen and his own uh, colleagues, if you will, because he has left the faith of Judaism and began following this Jesus. Now he get, he tells us, verse nine, here's kind of how the change comes about. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. Isn't that, that, 
So he's going to force them to blaspheme God so that he could then punish them or have them killed. I was so obsessed, he says, with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. But on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, his colleagues. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So think about this. He is an individual that was so certain that he was right. He was going to, he was going to um, eradicate basically everyone else that believes something different. <clears throat> and this is the danger of certitude without allowing doubt uh, to be a part of your process. It can be an incubator for cruelty and violence. That's what we see happening, you know, around the world, especially with terrorism. But what we'll find is he changes. So Acts chapter 7, if you were to go back a number of chapters, he's sitting giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen. Um, and now it's interesting what Jesus will say to him. I am Jesus, verse 15, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replies. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness and of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So now his faith goes from certitude to crisis. He struck blind. Uh, everything that he thought he knew, he had to rethink. And it was only in this moment of meeting Jesus anew, or at least for the first time, that the scales on his eyes began to fall. And his dark night of not knowing Jesus uh, transformed into a new dawn. And I think that is just a great example. It's very, I think it's very um, powerful. And it's not the type of experience 99.9% .9 of people have in in coming to faith. But I think it does illustrate that process that a lot of times we go through metaphorically rather than physically. Okay, so sooner or later, uh, we will have these moments where we have an undercurrent of cognitive, cognitive dissonance and um, we have to resist those moments of fear that prevents us from thinking, rethinking and reforming. And uh, so when we seek certainty, I think it's important to understand that it can lead to a crisis of faith, because what happens many times is um, a crisis of faith, with faith, when you think you've got it all lined up, will come about when you meet someone that has a better argument than you do. And then all of a sudden your world will begin to uh, crumble a little bit.
Now, um, Peter Enns has a book called The Sin of Certainty. Very good book. And he says that the sin of certainty is the fact that you have elevated your own thoughts about God uh, to a place of certainty that then uh, does not allow you to decouple your faith in God from your thoughts about God. I think that's a really good point. So he says, our thoughts about God are precious to us because they give us a sense of who we are in a very chaotic world. The key to this unsettling discomfort is to decouple our faith in God from our thoughts about God. We all tend to create God in our own image. Uh, we all have our own ways of thinking. And a lot of times we think that God is exactly like us, not the other person. So I don't think anyone fully rises above that tendency. But um, the need for certainty is that working of fear many times inside of us to limit God to our own mental construct of him. And that's that's something that we got to have to be very careful of. Some thoughts there? So the problem in using our beliefs um, is that that becomes our trust rather than trusting in God, trusting that God is good, trusting that God is love, trusting that God is uh, full of grace, uh, those things that we find in the scripture. Um, the need for certainty often limits God. So just be careful. Uh, of thinking that holding all the right beliefs is make, makes you have a strong faith. A strong faith is more of akin to faithfulness than it is knowledge. Faith is uh, akin to working through the crises that we often go through and coming out the other side, still trusting that God loves us and that type of thing. So a faith that rests on knowing, you see here, where you must know to have faith is a disaster waiting to happen. All it takes, like I said a moment ago, is to meet someone that has a better argument than you do. And if you can let go of that, um, I think you'll come to a place where you begin to feel secure, not final, but you do feel secure in your relationship with God. And that's a very freeing thing. Okay, the last thing uh, Pete N says, not the last thing, he writes a whole book on this, but the deeper problem here is the unspoken need for uh, our thinking about God to be right, to have joyful, freeing, healing, and meaningful faith. If, if, if we think that we won't experience joy, freedom, healing, and meaning, unless we have everything lined up, just exactly right about God, we're never going to experience what Jesus said. I came to give you life and to give that in more abundance to you. All right. So uh, this is my last slide for the night. Our theological house often needs not only remodeling, but the foundation is built upon Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So that's an image that... 
uh, is used quite often. In fact, it's uh, found in the writings of Peter. But um, one of the things that we find that Paul says a couple different places in Galatians and 2 Corinthians 3.14 is that um, God unveils this to us as we are ready for it. Um, even in John chapter 1, where it talks about the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. It's the uh, kind of the unveiling that God allows us to reshape our faith over the course of a lifetime. So the last thing I want to say tonight is our awareness that in Jesus Christ we have met God, and is what that's what Karl Barth, famous theologian, um, that is not allowed sometimes in evangelical circles because he's um, he has some different viewpoints on things that doesn't fit that construct. But uh, he is a brilliant uh, theologian that says, he says, our awareness that in Jesus Christ we have met God is what is the original and ultimate fact. Um, this is built upon God unveiling that to us. And there's all been a moment where we have realized the best way to understand God is to understand Jesus. So, so do you have some thoughts, comments, questions, anything on our lesson tonight? No? Well, either I've done a bang up job explaining this or I've confused you to no end. So, <laughs> examples were helpful. <laughs> but anyways. The, exa the examples were helpful, Larry. Yeah. And I think it works in different ways. I mean, obviously, um, how can I put this? The, the examples I gave you are, are kind of more direct in relationship mm -hmm. with Jesus. So we don't have that. We, you know, we right. experience it in a different dynamic. But I think the process is the same in some ways, for sure. Anything else? Okay, we won't do a study next Wednesday night. So we'll come back to this uh, topic two weeks from tonight, okay? Okay, go. All right, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Okay, if I don't see you, you have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right, good night. Good night.